Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Hello, good friends. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod, coming to you from our nation's capital, Around 8.30 a.m. this Friday morning, September 9, at the end of what turned out to be a very busy news week. Another twist in the Mar-a-Lago document scandal as the Justice Department appealed a federal judge's decision to appoint a special master in the case. Looks like Mary Garland means business. Well, if Donald Trump's in legal hot water, so is his former counselor, Steve Bannon, charged in New York State for running a phony fundraising operation to build Trump's wall and marched out of the Manhattan DA's office yesterday in handcuffs. A big family reunion at the White House as Barack and Michelle Obama celebrated the ceremonial unveiling of their official portraits, which Donald Trump had denied them for four years. Labor Day marked the official kickoff of the midterm elections, and the entire world paused to mourn the passing of Queen Elizabeth II after 70 years of public service. Well, to help us put it all in perspective, let's turn to today's panel. David Jackson, national political correspondent for USA Today. Hello, David. Hey, Bill. How you doing? Philip Bump, national correspondent for The Washington Post. Philip, welcome back. Good morning, sir. And joining us for the first time here on our Bill Press Pod Roundtable, Emily Gooden, who is U.S. political reporter for the DailyMail.com. Welcome, Emily. Thanks for having me. And Emily, let's turn to you first. Uh, working for a British publication with the passing of the Queen yesterday. I mean, were you surprised at the response here in the U.S.? It was wall-to-wall cable news. I've got the New York Times in front of me. The whole first page, basically, Queen and Spirit of Britain, plus an entire section of the Times, especially on the Queen. Um, Loved here almost as much as in the UK? Absolutely. I think there's just a lot of affection for her around the world and so much admiration and respect for her 70 years of service to her country. I mean, that's quite a dedication. And I will say President Biden told my colleague Nikki last night that he will probably go to her funeral. And mm. I think it's going to be a huge state occasion. President, first lady, leaders around the world paying tribute to her. Uh, and also, I saw the flags are flying at half staff over the United States Capitol, uh, which uh, is re- remarkable. David Jackson, this is this is kind of the end of an era, not just for the UK, but the entire world, isn't it? Very much so. I mean, she's one of the last people who had a direct connection to World War II, even though she was a young girl at the time, but still she was a, very much a public figure at that time. And uh, just just the, just the what, what a life. I mean, that's all you can really say. I mean, from World War II, uh, became queen in like early, during the Eisenhower administration and all of the changes she said. Also, so many people feel like they know her thanks to the television coverage, the gossip yeah. columns, and the television <laughs> series The Queen, and the movies about The Queen, and uh, it's, it, it does really feel like a loss in the family. 
Yeah, Philip, I've always been fascinated by this connection between the United States and the royal family. I mean, she met 13 American presidents, starting with Harry Truman, met everyone until Joe Biden, except for LBJ. And, you know, we so we fought this, the Revolutionary War to rid ourselves from this monarchy, and yet we can't seem to get enough of it. What's it all about? Well, I think in this case, it's just a symbol of constancy, right? I mean, I, mm. I looked at the numbers yesterday. Nine out of 10 human beings alive today were born after she became queen, right? Wow. So, so 90% of humans on Earth, not just the yeah. United States, yeah. have, have only known the, the United Kingdom with, with Elizabeth as queen. You know, and she, she was queen for about 30% of the existence of the United States of America, as my dog weighs in in the background here. I mean, you know, th this is this is a remarkable figure who held a position of prominence and attention for an extremely long time. I think it's very natural that there would therefore be a lot of attention paid to her, to the culture around her. To, to the, the the means and manner in which she, she carried about her day. Like it's it, there are very few people in human existence who have carried the same amount of attention for so long and particularly someone who would then overlap within the era of modern communication. Yeah, I think it's very natural that she'd be almost omnipresent in, in discussions. Uh, and Emily, before we move on, I mean, he has been king in waiting longer than anybody in history. Charles, at the age of 73, finally ascends to the throne, King Charles, Charles III. He's pretty outspoken, pretty political on a lot of issues. What can we expect from him? Yeah, that's a great question, Bill. I mean, first of all, it just still sounds strange to hear King Charles. I think there's going to be a, a, few, a few weeks of adjustment there for all of us. But yeah, there is concern about how outspoken he will be and his politics. He's been a long proponent of the environment and climate issues, which he's won a lot of praise for. Um, but he's also had opinions on the press and the role of the press mm -hmm. in the government. Um, he has given interviews and the queen has never, ever, never, ever gave an interview to a member of the media, whereas mm -hmm. King Charles as Prince of Wales gave several so it will be interesting to see how he transforms the public role of the monarch. And, you know, we never knew what the queen was thinking. But will that be the case with the new king? It'll be fascinating to watch. It will be fascinating to watch. So uh, one day for sure, uh, dominated by the queen. And pretty soon we'll be back right in the scandals of the day, starting with the big flap over the classified documents seized from Mar-a-Lago, the, the uh, we know the judge, Florida judge uh, ordered the appointment of a special master uh, to see what the DOJ took that might have, should, should still belong to Donald Trump. And now the Justice Department has appealed that decision. What does that tell us, David, about where the Justice Department is going? Um, I think that they're, they fear that Trump is just going to try to tie this up with, with legal minutia and legal questions for months, if not years. And I think it's a uh, I think it's a real concern for them. I mean, he's obviously the special master idea. I'm, I'm convinced it's something they just drummed up in order to delay the proceedings and delay the investigation. And, and they were successful, thanks to this judge in Florida. So I, I think the Justice Department feels like uh, that this judge's ruling was ridiculous and they're very confident they'll prevail on appeal. But how long will it take? Uh, you, you know that if he if the appeals court reverses it in Atlanta, Trump is surely going to appeal to the Supreme Court, and that's going to take some time too. So it's all. Uh, I think the I, I think the concern is how long all this is going to take. Well, Philip, as I understand it, 
the Justice Department is saying, uh, okay, we'll make a deal. We keep the classified documents, which are clearly belong to the United States government, and we'll send them back all the junk and all the other stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, there, it's it's long been the case that there have been a number of categories of documents, essentially four sorts of documents that were seized by the FBI. The first is stuff didn't come, you know, it's not related to the presidency at all. It's newspaper clippings or whatever that Donald Trump clipped out, you know, whatever, like that, like that stuff, that the, the clearly Trumpian stuff. Then there's the presidential mm-hmm. records, which can be stuff that sort of seems blurry, particularly to Donald Trump, you know, a memo that he wrote when he's sitting at his desk in the White House, things along those lines, which historians would argue is a presidential record. Then there are the materials which are marked as classified, but have been declassified, which I think probably falls into the category of describing. And then of course, the obviously classified material. Uh, the critical point here for people to remember is that two of those categories, Donald Trump really has no claim over. The first is anything marked as classified, because according to the subpoena that he was issued in May, he was meant to have turned all of that over. Uh, his he, his lawyers claimed that he had, and obviously he didn't. Uh, and that's just marked as classified, not necessarily actually classified. But then he also has no claim over presidential records because of the Presidential Records Act. And so, yes, I think you're right that the Justice Department is 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 recognizing that they're on remarkably unfriendly <laughs> turf in this courtroom <laughs> yeah. uh, and doing its best. Uh, but I think they're also trying to make a point. They're trying to make a point that these are different types of documents and to conflate them all together as being something which needs to be evaluated is simply wrong. Right. Uh, and I think they're trying to make a deal before they have to go to the appeals court or to the Supreme Court, right? And just basically be able to move on. Yeah, I mean, they absolutely want to move forward, particularly with this idea that they're not allowed to continue with using this material in their investigation. Uh, honestly, I think they'd probably be happy to go to an appeals court at this point rather than have Judge Cannon, who has not been very favorable to them. Right. So, Emily, I've been curious watching the response of Republican leaders uh, to this um, this whole flap at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, in the beginning, of course, everyone was attacking the FBI, attacking the Justice Department. Uh, and the more stuff that comes out about how many classified documents, top secret documents were there, including, as the Washington Post reported yesterday, uh, documents related to a, another country's nuclear capacity, there seems to be a little backing off. Here, for example, uh, one reporter trying to get a comment and a response out of Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell. Do you think it's appropriate the way that the former president was storing those top secret and classified documents at his private estate at Mar-a-Lago? Yeah, I, I don't really have any comments on this this whole in, investigation that's been dominating the news for the last month. I think we're following it like all of you are. <laughs> documents, Mr. Leader. I mean, that's important. You don't have any comment on that? Hey, Emily, nah, <laughs> no big deal, right? <laughs> when you started to ask the question, my first thought was, what response uh, from Republicans? They've, uh, they are definitely trying to distance themselves from this and some of the, late, uh, the, the latest involving the former president. Um, I mean, at first, when the raid happened, you saw them defending him, calling it a political issue. But as we learn more and more about how he did have documents that were marked classified, and more details come out, they're becoming more and more quiet and mm-hmm. more and more wary. And I think they're very concerned about how this will affect them in the November election, because we've seen several Trump-supported candidates prevail in these competitive Republican primaries. So these are the candidates they are now stuck with. 
and what will happen come November 8th with what we learn. Uh, and David, it seems Marco Rubio, uh, there he is. This is he represents Mar-a-Lago, right? Seems to be one of the ones who's really caught because he was out there early on attacking the FBI, uh, and now suddenly he's in a real close contest with Val Demings, and uh, he's he's really backing off. Oh, for sure. No, and um, I mean, let's face it: the Repub- a lot of Republicans, including Mitch McConnell, hate Donald Trump, and they wish he'd go away. But- <laughs> They can't figure out how to do that. Um, actually, they want him to go away, but they want to somehow keep his voters. And I don't, I don't think that's a needle they're going to be able to thread. And it's just going to be a problem for him moving forward, and starting with the November 8th congressional elections. Uh, Emily made the good point. They're stuck with a lot of bad Trump candidates, and that's a problem. And all of this publicity surrounding classified material doesn't help with any of that. It's a big so, weight for them. Yeah. Philip, I mean, certainly, well, it's a question – can't we take away from this that this is you know, the appeal on the part of the Justice Department further underscores this is a serious effort on Mary Garland's part, and it's a criminal investigation? Yeah, no, I think that's true. But I think it, it, there's clearly an aspect of this, which is the Justice Department trying to put its foot down about what standards of behavior are ones that can be sort of allowed to flow under the bridge, right? Merrick Garland's got one of the hardest decisions that any attorney general has ever faced, which is whether or not actions that Donald Trump has taken, which seem to, I think, a lot of lay people to be pretty obviously criminal, whether or not it is worth the risk of indicting him. And I think everyone knows what those risks are, uh, you know, both from the standpoint of shifting how people understand the presidency to, of course, the the very real danger of of actual violence in response to it. It's it's a very difficult decision by Garland. And I think one of the things that we're seeing here is that the Justice Department is to some extent having its hand forced. They're they're being forced to Mm -hmm. sort of push forward on this as being a very real and serious investigation simply because they're facing uh, this this level of opposition from Donald Trump. I think Garland, all things being equal, would be very happy to indict uh, should he feel like the evidence is there, which again, to a layperson seems as though it may be. Uh, but I'm not sure that if the, the response from Trump's team hadn't been this firm. And look at, you know, the, the search itself was not very high profile. They were trying to keep it sort of quiet. But, you know, it really was Trump to a large extent who really forced this thing into the spotlight. And that, I think, changes the dynamic. Right. Uh, and the spotlight yesterday on another legal controversy was in Manhattan, where Donald Trump's former top counselor, uh, Steve Bannon, was indicted on charges of money laundering and conspiracy. Uh, let's just say he did not go lightly. Here is Mr. Bannon uh, in uh, during his perp walk. This is what happens in the last days of a dying regime. They will never shut me up. They'll have to kill me first. There you go. Uh, so, uh, Emily, uh, Steve Bannon had a presidential pardon, but um, doesn't apply to New York State, right? No, it does not. And uh, that's where he's in trouble. And I know you mentioned the, we talked about the previous case in this case, but I'm also going to just flag a third case involving oh. Donald Trump that's out there. And that's this report that there's a federal grand jury looking into his political pack, his Save America yes. pack. And uh, that's a fascinating story to watch because it's not quite sure what he's doing with that $99 million he's setting on. It cannot be used for a presidential bid. He didn't really spend a lot on Republican candidates in this election thus far. 
So a lot of questions about why he's raising these record amounts of money and sitting on it. And now it's being investigated. So, Right. Uh, back to the front page of this morning's New York Times, the headline, Trump fundraising after loss is investigated by Justice Department. Right. This is another whole investigation. Uh, I want to come back to Steve Bannon for a second. David Jackson, um, you've been following this uh, for a long time. Have you kept score of how many former Trump aides have been indicted, convicted, or ended up in prison? No, there's so many of them I would lost track. Yeah, right. I, on, on Bannon, I mean, I have two thoughts. First, he he, he loves being a martyr. So in some ways, he, oh, he is yeah. actually enjoying this. I mean, that whole, I mean, I'm sure that perp walk and those comments, I'm sure he was been practicing those for days. Another thing is, you know, basically the state is prosecuting for what the feds plan to prosecute him for but which got derailed because of the Trump pardon. So in, in a normal situation, Bannon could claim double jeopardy, but he can't do it in this case because he was never tried. It was a preemptive pardon from Trump. So his, his, his most effective legal weapon really doesn't exist in terms of these state charges. But, uh, yeah. I, you know, it's there's just no way to keep score. And all I can say is Steve Bannon won't be the last one. <laughs> Philip, there seems to be a parallel between these two investigations, the, the, the Steve Bannon and the one uh, into the president's uh, political action committee, right? In, in terms of raising money ostensibly for one purpose, but using it for another. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. You know, in, in a broader context, the term for that is fraud, right? I mean, yes, that, right. That There's you say you're, you're doing this thing. Uh, I think that there, there are two things I want to say. The first is that there is a, a, a longstanding pattern, of, particularly on the right, people doing this. I mean, look at the Tea Party in 2010 and on. There are all sorts of examples of people saying, you know, support us. We're fight for the Tea Party and fight the establishment. And then they just dump, you know, barrel pulls of money in their pockets. Uh, this, <laughs> this happens a lot. People are leveraging this anger and this frustration to get donations. And then there's very little follow-up, right? You know, I'm, a few people have benefited more from the lack of follow-up by his supporters and Donald Trump in general. Uh, but this happens a lot. The, the other thing I want to say about Steve Bannon is this, and I think it's really important to say, he is very, very corny. Like that is a corny thing to say. That is a goofy thing to say. And he says it because he feels as though he can get away with it. He, he can sort of present himself as this martyr. And I think it's important to call out, look, man, no, you're not a martyr. You're not being targeted because you're so tough and important. You're being targeted because what you did was a little sketchy on the surface and probably even worse than that. Underneath. Yeah. Uh, it, it, uh, there was a certain pleasure, I must admit, in someone who has bragged so much about being um, – untouchable, right, to finally get caught and to watch him walk out in handcuffs yesterday. All right, our panel today, Emily Gooden from DailyMail.com, Philip Bump from The Washington Post, and David Jackson, USA Today. A lot of stuff we didn't get to yet. We will pick up the rest of the news of the week after a quick break here on the Bill Press Pod. Today's roundtable is brought to you by the American Federation of Teachers, the good men and women teachers of America, members of the AFT under President Randy Weingarten. Kids are back in school. Teachers are back in the classroom. And the AFT, the largest teachers union in the country, with over 3,000 locals and local branches of the AFT and over a million and a half members doing the Lord's work every day in the classrooms through from pre-K all the way up to higher education. We salute the Teachers of America, thank them for their great work, and thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Okay, it's time to commit. 
2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. And we're back with today's panel. David Jackson joining us from USA Today, Philip Bump from the Washington Post, Emily Gooden from DailyMail.com on our roundtable. It was a joyous celebration at the White House uh, this week as Barack Obama and Michelle Obama came back for the first time together uh, to the White House. Emily, I don't know whether you were there in the East Room, but uh, it was kind of like a big family reunion, right? I was there in the East Room, and it was definitely a party-like atmosphere, cheering, clapping, joyful occasion. Um, it was the first time Michelle Obama had been back since she had been First Lady. Uh, President Obama had come earlier for a healthcare event, but it was her first time back. And a lot of staff were back for the first time since mm-hmm. uh, the Obama presidency. Cabinet members I saw, right. Cabinet members, uh, Rahm Emanuel, the former chief of staff, Valerie Jarrett, their longtime counselor. Um, the former press secretaries, Robert Gibbs, were there. It was just, it was a big family reunion. Just a joyful occasion. Everyone excited to be there. Everyone excited to see the portraits. Um, it was just a really fun time. Uh, and David, you and I uh, covered the Obama White House. Uh, went to daily briefings together for eight years. Uh, it was interesting watching this relationship between Joe Biden and Barack Obama develop, which was which became very close, but was never. A bromance, really, huh? No, not really. They they definitely had their bumps. I mean, I remember in particular the time that Joe Biden up and announced that he was in favor of gay marriage and thought there should be gay marriage <laughs> rights, and that did not right. please President Obama at all because he was planning to make that announcement later that week. So you always had instances like that. Um, uh, Biden was also, you know, Biden was very much for pulling out of Afghanistan way back then. And that was a source of some consternation between him and, and the Obamaites. And I, I noticed in the run-up to the story, the portrait story, there, there were a couple of news accounts about the friction mm-hmm. between Biden people and, 
Obama people. But, you know, that's pretty traditional. I mean, there were problems between the George H.W. Bush people and the Reagan people. Yeah. Um, the Carter people and the Mondale people didn't always get along. So I, I just think it's just, it's just it's just part of the deal. And uh, but it was nice to see everybody back in the, in the White House there. It's particularly at the staff level that you get that tension, yes, I think. And that's, so. that's what the articles uh, in, indicated. Uh, and this, Philip, was a an honor uh, that is traditionally afforded to a former president and first lady by their successor in the White House. And yet Donald Trump, um, maybe characteristically, broke that tradition, um, which Michelle Obama couldn't help but allude to in her remarks. Here's the former first lady. Those of us lucky enough to serve work, as Barack said, as hard as we can for as long as we can, as long as the people choose to keep us here. And once our time is up, we move on. How about that one, Philip? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's no doubt, huh? Pretty pointed, right? <laughs> um, you know, I mean, I think it's a it, it is serves obviously as a useful reminder. I think that it was intentionally done, but I think it also sort of reflects the nature of the whole event, which was sort of calling back to this time, which seemed tumultuous. You know, you go back to 2012, 2013, 2014; those were not times in which there was nothing to talk about in politics. But compared to 2015, 16, and on, it seems like just a very different prior era of the U.S. presidency. And I think to some extent, I mean, obviously, Joe Biden is extremely happy to have the very popular Barack Obama hang around with him and, you know, make jokes and be his friend. Uh, yeah. But I think it really did. The whole thing really did call back to a different era of American politics, which now seems to have been passed. Uh, and I think those comments sort of reflect that. I think it's been interpreted as being about Trump very fairly. Uh, but I think it also just very broadly speaks to something has changed uh, fundamentally in our politics since the Obamas left office. By the way, I must add, I think the two portraits are stunningly beautiful and will be uh, quite different from all the other presidential portraits that you see uh, in the uh, in the various rooms of the of the White House. Uh, by the way, um, I hope you have a chance to see them yourselves. So, big n- political news yesterday when uh, we're now full flush into the midterms, and in Michigan, a very critical state, Gretchen Whitmer up for re-election as governor. The Supreme Court yesterday said that uh, a an initiative which would make abortion legal statewide in the state of Michigan must appear on the November ballot. Emily, this uh, changes things not only in Michigan, but maybe around the country, correct? Absolutely. Democrats are hoping this uh, the abortion issue brings out voters, and voter data is pointing that way. In states like Michigan, Pennsylvania, Kansas, we've seen the number of young women registering to vote skyrocket. Uh, So Democrats are really hoping that with them out on the ballot, it's going to help them in these swing states to keep control of the Senate. Now there's some talk. Will Republicans be able to take the House? Are they getting a little too cocky? A little too early to tell there, I think. But the signs pointing to the Democrats are are hopeful, definitely more hopeful than they were a few months ago. Do we signs of the, see signs of this in other states, uh, David? That um, the SCOTUS Dobbs decision is, uh, in fact, uh, becoming a a big turnout issue or grassroots issue for Democrats. Uh, yes, we do. I, I think in Texas is one example. I think that the governor's race there is going to be the Beto O'Rourke Greg mm-hmm. Abbott governor's race is going to be a little bit closer because of Dobbs, but I think. It, it tends to be more, I think, in blue states where 
there are already abortion rights and where the, the issue is already, the Democrats are already in control. Uh, so I'm in purple states like Michigan, you know, I'm less sure about, it, but we'll see. Another thing that's funny about Michigan is, you know, even though it's supposedly a good political environment for the Republicans, uh, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer has been a solid favorite all year long. And I think it, uh, her her uh, her lead in the polls underscores the challenges Republicans face. And, and now it, it includes the Dobbs decision. Well, Philip, uh, in one state, Blake Masters, uh, Senate candidate, he uh, originally with his website said he was 100 percent pro-life. Right. After the uh, Kansas vote. Uh, he sort of started backing down and took that statement off his website. Uh, he's come under scrutiny for that. Uh, maybe another sign, again, of the strength of this um, abortion issue. Uh, and here's an ad that the Jewish Democratic Council of America put up against Blake Masters yesterday. Republican Blake Masters is a nightmare for American Jews and democracy. A dangerous extremist, Masters blamed U.S. entry in World War I on Jewish bankers and claimed many insurrectionists on January 6th were FBI agents. White supremacists and neo-Nazis support Masters because he'll undermine democracy in the Senate. The neo-Nazi publisher of the Daily Stormer said, Blake Masters is the kind of man this country needs. Really? What do you think, Philip? Pretty hard stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, I would say that is maybe the platonic ideal of a negative campaign ad in terms of, you know, right. cramming in every possible terrible association you can. Uh, yeah, I mean, Blake Masters is in a really weird spot, not necessarily just because of his views. I think we're seeing that, you know, views like his sort of get muddied by the, the sheer extent to which people vote along party lines. But his position has been muddied because his benefactor has decided not to put any money in. So Peter Thiel, who helped uh, the, the billionaire who helped promote his uh, candidacy when he was running for the nomination. Once he won the nomination, he, he suddenly turned off the tap. And it's really, really weird that he did. I, I realize this isn't your question, but Blake Masters is, is this this really weird figure along with J.D. Vance in Ohio just because uh, he had this guy who was putting in all this money to get him elected and then stopped right by the general election. So, yeah, I mean, Blake Masters, I think, is back tracking from abortion says is a lot about how Republicans view the issue, but he's got a lot of problems <laughs> that come down to a lot of different things, uh, including his bankroll. Uh, and it's interesting to see Arizona, which we all considered a deep red state just a couple of years ago, right? Suddenly become blue, right? If, at least yeah. blueish. Blue you know, and this is... Hint. This is the argument that a lot of Democrats make is that demography is is destiny here. Um, mm -hmm. And Arizona is an example of that, but other states like Florida aren't, uh, you know, so it's it's sort of hard to read the tea leaves, but you're, you're absolutely right. Yeah, David, I'm going to come back to you for a second here. Uh, another highly contested Senate race in Ohio, uh, J.D. Vance and Tim Ryan, the president, is going out to Columbus, Ohio today. Uh, he was in Pennsylvania three times last week. And the Republican Accountability Project, these are Republicans not happy with J.D. Vance, uh, put up this ad yesterday against the Republican Senate candidate. I've been a lifelong registered Republican. I have been a Republican all my life. Uh, the reason I kind of liked J.D. Vance was that he was uh, kind of an anti-Trumper. And then as soon as he realized, oh, Trump can help me. He just started parodying everything Trump said. We're still debating the 2020 election. I, I don't want someone that's just going to reflect the position of one person. We've lost it somewhere in being told that we're, we're constant victims. You vote blue until this whole Trump authoritarianism has gone by the wayside. 
Boy, flipping Ohio, David, would be a huge win for Democrats. Uh, what do you see in the J.D. Vance? For sure. Well, I think he's probably now an underdog. By the way, Donald Trump is going back to Ohio on ah. September the 18th. He's going to Youngstown. But I think J.D. Vance's problem underscored what we've talked about earlier. These, these Trump candidates are just going to struggle. The larger the electorate, the more a Trump-style candidate is going to struggle. And I think Ohio is the classic example of that because – Unlike some other states, J.D. Vance, you talked about Blake Masters and Herschel Walker in Georgia and Mm -hmm. Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania. They're inexperienced politicians who say some pretty wacky things and do some pretty wacky things. J.D. Vance, although he also lacks political experience, is a fairly normal human being um, for for all his faults. And the fact that he is struggling, I think, just indicates that it's it's not so much the lack of quality among the candidates, but just the fact that they're supported by Donald Trump. And that's just an anchor on a lot of these guys. And it includes Ohio, a seat that should be an easy take for the Republicans, but probably won't yeah. be. Mm-hmm. So, Emily, let's talk a little bit about the role of Joe Biden. Uh, he has said that he really wants to be out there uh, in the midterms, doing everything he can. Uh, we saw him last week in Montgomery County. Uh, Maryland. Yes, last evening he was uh, at a DNC fundraiser, uh, and um, he he's sort of loosely taken on not not so loosely, but he was I don't know looser than we normally see him and poking fun at the Republicans, taking credit for all the infrastructure programs that they voted against. Here's a quick clip of the president. There are a lot more Republicans taking credit for that bill than we actually voted for it. I see them out there, and now we're going to build this new bridge here. We're all for it. And by the way, this new road, and we're going to have an internet that's going to be all the way. I love them, man. They ain't got no shame. So what do you see the president's role, Emily, and how effective will he be? Well, he's certainly doing what Democrats have been asking him to do, which is taking more of an attack dog role and taking on the MAGA extreme Republicans, as he calls them. But he's also taking credit for his administration's accomplishments, something he said the Obama administration didn't do well enough Mm -hmm. uh, when they were in charge. So he seems to be making up for past mistakes and trying to appease Democrats who want to see a vibrant president on the attack. And it's paying off a little bit. We're seeing some candidates who are a little wary about appearing with him, starting to come to events with him. We saw John Fetterman with him in uh, Pittsburgh on Labor Day at a union event. Tim Ryan, who uh, the Democratic Senate candidate in Ohio, who was uh, campaigning elsewhere on the president's last visit to the state, is supposed to be with him today. So as the president's poll numbers improve and as he becomes a little bit more of an attack dog and face for the party, we're seeing candidates respond and wanting to to be with him. Yeah. So uh, finally, I must say this. I saw an article this morning I didn't know anything about, which really um, made me very curious. I'd like to get your take on this. And that's a report, uh, I believe, I forget where I saw it this morning, that the club for, I think it was on Politico, that the club for growth, which is this very conservative economic organization, has been totally Donald Trump in Donald Trump's camp for the last eight years, uh, has started a new program where they're creating what they call a bullpen for 2024. And they're talking to and putting money into candidates who might run in 2024 in case the lead pitcher fails. (laughs) Uh, David Jackson, that's sort of a 
a, a, what, a vote of no confidence in Donald Trump or just for the worse? Or what's it mean? Well, there's certainly a lot of contingency plans going on for 2024. And um, yeah, I noticed that too. But, you know, the Club for Growth and Trump have clashed. You know, they clash in the Ohio Senate primary. That's true. Yep. Right. <laughs> Excuse me. Club for Growth back Josh Mandel. But now, like I said before, a lot of Republicans hate Donald Trump and they're already fretting about the prospect that he's going to run again in 2024. And they're certainly looking for alternatives. And they're certainly encouraging people like Mike Pence to go on the offense against Trump. The mm. question will be, will anybody do that? So, Philip, um, does it show does, does this show that Donald Trump's uh, vaulted power over the Republican Party is starting to fade somewhat? Well, I think if you look at, you know, put yourself in Club for Growth shoes, right? So Club for Growth has this somewhat shaky relationship with Donald Trump. They've tried to align with him where they can. Uh, but let's say that Club for Growth is able to identify someone, you know, I think it's also sort of a, a little bit of a diss on Ron DeSantis as well. But if they're able to identify someone who actually ends up doing well in the primary, that really benefits Club for Growth, right? Like it really mm. positions them as kingmakers at, at a time when a lot of Republicans are still going to be looking for, you know, Trump and potentially DeSantis as leaders. And so I think this is sort of win-win for Club for Growth, right? So they can sort of start testing the waters, promoting people who might go on to Senate, who might go on the House, who are then, you know, loyal to uh, Club for Growth. But then they also might just accidentally hit the jackpot and have someone who they backed and promoted who then ends up, you know, doing very well or even winning the nomination. You know, if they if it doesn't work, they're, you know, these are the tepid enough steps at this point that they can sort of, you know, come back into the Trumpian fold if need be. But, you know, for an outside organization that's, you know, trying to reestablish its own brand, I, I think it makes sense. Right. And I guess, Emily, at least we can say it's a pragmatic uh, approach, right? That there are a lot of things can happen in the next two years, and they just want to be sure that they don't put all their eggs in the Donald Trump basket. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a great point. And I'll point out, too, we still don't know if Donald Trump is going to run for president again. He's dangling that possibility out there. So it's a question of how much more of this we'll have over the next few years. Yeah, uh, that may depend again on where we started with uh, with Merrick Garland. Before we move on to your favorite stories of the week, I just want to mention, mention I forgot to mention uh, earlier when we were talking about the big ceremony at the White House with President uh, Biden and former President Donald, I mean, ooh, uh, Barack Obama, that our good friend Gabe DiBenedetti, who's a regular on our uh, Reporters Roundtable, uh, is out with a new book next week. Uh, publication date is September 13, and his book is right on this point. It's called The Long Alliance, The Imperfect Union of Joe Biden and Barack Obama. Great book, a great read. I've talked to Gabe about it, and we're going to do an interview with him about the book uh, in a couple of weeks here on the Bill Press Pod. So uh, check out that book, and you can certainly pre-order it. Uh, comes out next week. All right. Thank you so much to uh, today's panel, Philip Pump and David Jackson and Emily Gooden. And we always ask you before you go, well, there must have been one story this week with all the other stuff you were covering and working on that caught your attention and made you stop for just a moment to think about it or weep about it or laugh about it. Uh, David Jackson, start us off. Your What caught your attention? It's kind of a future story, but it's these stories about President Biden is planning to attend the funeral for Queen Elizabeth. Oh, II. yes. And there are also reports that other presidents. So um, I'm wondering, will Donald Trump be in that presidential contingent going to the funeral of Queen Elizabeth II? It's certainly a possibility because, you know, he has land holdings in the United Kingdom. So there'd be a reason for him to go. And 
I just think the body language of that will be fascinating. So I'm, I'm eagerly, it's an ongoing story. And I'm eagerly looking forward to seeing which of our ex-presidents go to this funeral and how they interact with each other. Wouldn't he have to be invited or not? Yeah, and I, 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 he would be, and they've been very quiet about it. No one's discussed it publicly that I've seen, and uh, but I'm sure they'll invite him because he's an ex-U.S. president whom the Queen met with. So I suspect all the ex-presidents will be invited, but I also suspect that behind the scenes there are negotiations going on as to who will attend and who won't. And who would represent the United States, right? Right. Well, Biden would represent the United States, but there'll be uh, there'll be other right. Americans who are going to go, and uh, yeah. I, I I would be shocked uh, if Bush didn't go, George W. Bush. Yeah. So I, I suspect there'll be more than one president there. Excellent question, Philip. Uh, <laughs> what caught your attention? Uh, I, I am something of a an obsessive about Dinesh D'Souza's very bad film, Two Thousand Mules, <laughs> and its election conspiracy theories. So I was very uh, struck by the fact that he had a book, an accompanying book, uh, book that was supposed to uh, uh, reinforce the claims made by the film that his publisher had to actually pull from the shelves and already actually reached distributors. They had to pull it uh, to be reissued. D'Souza mm. and the publisher both tried to say, oh, it was just you know some minor error. Uh, NPR got a copy of it this week, though, and went through it and found that it made all sorts of allegations about nonprofit organizations. Some of the nonprofit organizations said to NPR, you know, not only are, are the claims not true, but that they found them libelous. The group that provided the purported data undergirding D'Souza's, again, very bad movie, uh, even walked away from it and said that they had no claim to the book. Uh, so, you know, this is this is a house of cards <laughs> and always has been a house of cards. And it looks like, at least at the edges, it's starting to crumble. And Dinesh D'Souza, another who benefited from a Donald Trump pardon, correct? Absolutely. Yes, sir. There you go. Hi, Emily, your favorite story of the week? Well, I have something that just made me smile in a week where we've had some sad news. Um, uh, All tied to our friends in Great Britain. First of all, uh, I'm a pet lover, so this Mm -hmm. is what drew me to this story. When we got the new prime minister earlier this week, that's how this week started, um, 10 Downing Street has an official cat, Larry the Cat, who has a hilarious Twitter account if you're looking for one to follow. And Larry stays on, despite who the prime minister is. He's been through three or four at this point. So there is some consistency there where we keep the cats. And also, um, I learned the queen, (laughs) who is a pet lover, had more than 40 corgis during Mm -hmm. her reign. And she, when she died, she still had four of them. And they think her family or her staff are going to divide the dogs up between them. So Yeah. I read one point where the queen said she stopped getting new corgis because she didn't want uh, corgis to really outlive her, right? She didn't want to leave them as kind of orphans when she left. But still, there were four There were four left uh, still uh, at the palace. Well, uh, my favorite story, uh, picking up on that, Emily, uh, and this was, uh, I saw this on, online. It's a, a former security guard for the queen who told a little story about he would go uh, up in Scotland uh, hiking with the queen. Uh, And he and the queen were out hiking in the woods one day and came upon an American couple in what turned out to be a very funny uh, little encounter. Uh, Here is uh, this uh, police officer telling the tale. And normally on these picnic sites, you, you meet nobody, but there was two hikers coming towards us and the queen would always stop and say hello. And it was two Americans on a walking holiday. And it was clear from the moment that we first stopped, they hadn't recognized the Queen, which is fine. And the American gentleman was telling the Queen where he came from, where they were going to next, and where they'd been to in Britain. 
And I could see it coming, and sure enough, he said to Her Majesty, and where do you live? <laughs> and she said, well, I live in London, but I've got a holiday home just the other side of the hills. <laughs> and he said, well, how often have you been coming up here? Oh, she said, I've been coming up here ever since I was a little girl, so over 80 years. And he could see the clogs thinking. He said, well, if you've been coming up here for 80 years, you must have met the Queen. <laughs> and as it. quick as a flash, says, well, I haven't, but Dickie meets her regularly. <laughs> <laughs> So the guy said to me, oh, you've met the Queen, what's she like? And because I was with her a long time and I knew I could pull a leg, I said, oh, she can be very cantankerous at times, <laughs> but she's got a lovely sense of humour. Anyway, the next thing I knew, this guy comes round, puts his arm around my shoulder, and before I could see what was happening, he gets his camera, gives it to the Queen, and says, can you take a picture of the two of us? <laughs> anyway, we swapped places, and I took a picture of them with the Queen, and we never let on, and we waved goodbye, and then Her Majesty said to me, I'd love to be a fly on the wall when he shows those photographs to the friends in America and hopefully someone tells him who I am. <laughs> oh, what a great story. Uh, just a, she did have a great sense of humor. And by the way, uh, along those lines, uh, one of the best books I read last year is a little book called Mrs. Queen Takes the Train by William Kuhn. And it's a novel uh, all about uh, the queen one day just having enough of all of her hard work, and she walks out of the palace and gets on a train and goes off to Scotland by herself and some wonderful, very funny adventures. Mrs. Queen takes a train. Uh, highly recommend it. Uh, and with that, we thank our panelists again for a great job wrapping up the news of the week with their insights. Emily Gooden, good to have you on. We'll get you back from U.S. political reporter for DailyMail.com. Philip Bump, Again, Philip, good to have you, national correspondent from Washington Post. Always great to have you back. Uh, and David Jackson, national political correspondent for USA Today. Thanks to our panelists and thanks to all of you for joining us here. Uh, and now enjoy your weekend. Have a great weekend and come back on Tuesday. Very special edition of the Bill Press Pod. We're going to be talking to Steve Shepard, who is the chief polling analyst for Politico who's going to take us through the political landscape here as we begin these midterms in earnest, looking at the important Senate races, House races, and governor's races uh, across the country. That's on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. Again, have a great weekend, and we will see you next Tuesday. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.